Hi, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. On today's episode, episode 44, we are going to be discussing The Doors' L.A. Woman, which turns 50 today. It was released April 19th, 1971, and was their sixth and final studio album with Jim Morrison, who tragically passed away at the age of 27, less than three months later on July 3rd, 1971. Now, before we get going, I just want to thank you for choosing to listen. I know sanity breaks can be few and far between these days, whether you're listening on a walk by yourself or a walk with your dog or a drive to get a coffee or go to work or school. So I appreciate you entrusting me with your sanity break, and I hope you will find that you chose wisely. Also, that little sample of L.A. Woman that you heard after the usual intro music was created by my brother Spencer Cropper, who will be stopping by a little bit later in the episode, and I've also created a few samples of uh, the title track and Riders on the Storm myself, so uh, don't worry about copyright issues. All of the samples that you hear are homemade. Not that you would worry about that. Don't worry on my behalf. So, L.A. Woman, as I said, the sixth and final studio album with Jim Morrison before he passed away. The three remaining Doors did release three more albums after Jim passed, but in most people's minds, L.A. Woman is their final album. They released other voices in 1971 as well, uh, later in the year, and they had begun writing it while Jim was in Paris. Uh, he went to Paris after they finished L.A. Woman, and that's where he eventually passed away. And they had hoped that he would return to finish it with them. And then they released Full Circle the following year in 1972, which produced The Mosquito, uh, their last charting single and one of their biggest hits globally since it's in Spanish. That album does have a very cool cover, I'll give it that. Uh, but they disbanded after it because Ray felt that the the whole thing wasn't really working without Jim. And then they reconvened in 1978 to record backing tracks for poetry that Jim had recorded in March 1969 and December 1970, and they released that as An American Prayer in 78. So that's what happened after L.A. Woman, but we're here to talk about L.A. Woman, and let's first give you a little bit of backdrop into what happened immediately leading up to it. So the Doors had spent the first two-thirds of 1970 touring behind Morrison Hotel, the album before L.A. Woman, which came out in 1970. Uh, it was dubbed the Roadhouse Blues Tour. And it was a fairly relaxed touring schedule, only 24 shows, uh, January 17th and 18th in New York, two shows each. February 5th and 6th in San Francisco, February 7th in Long Beach, February 13th in Cleveland, two shows, and February 15th, two shows in Chicago. And then they had a break for about two months, and then April 10th, two shows in Boston, April 12th, Denver, April 18th, Honolulu, May 1st, Philadelphia, May 2nd, Pittsburgh, May 8th, Detroit, May 10th, Baltimore, and then another break of about a month, and then June 5th, Seattle, June 6th, Vancouver, and then another two and a half month break 
August 21st, Bakersfield, August 22nd, San Diego, and August 29th, the Isle of Wight Festival in England. So not very uh, cost-effective touring at all with zigzagging back and forth from coast to coast like that for only a handful of shows uh, on each coast. Anyhow, they recorded most, if not all, of those shows for what became the Absolutely Live album, although it ended up featuring a lot from their Aquarius Theater shows from July of 1969 anyway, which had obviously already been recorded before the Roadhouse Blues Tour. Eleven of these 1970 shows have now been released in full. All four of the New York shows, which we discussed back in January, both Boston shows, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Vancouver, and the Isle of Wight. So they spend the first two-thirds of the year touring, albeit somewhat sporadically. And then September 20th, 1970, in Miami, Jim was convicted of profanity and indecent exposure for the so-called Miami incident, which took place at a show there in March of 1969. And then he comes back to L.A. and they went into Sunset Sound Recorders in November to work on Love Her Madly, L.A. Woman, and Riders on the Storm. And Paul Rothschild, who had produced their first five albums, loved the the big two, I would call them, L.A. Woman and Riders on the Storm, but he called Love Her Madly cocktail music. Now, he says that he said it in an attempt to motivate them to write something good, uh, his words, not mine, but the band took offense to it, uh, understandably so, and he had also been growing frustrated with the pace at which they produced new material, considering that uh, Jim, Ray, and Robbie were all songwriters. At this time, you know, the Beatles had just finished setting an impossible standard for everybody else to try to keep up with by pumping out two legendary albums per year, basically their entire six or seven years in the limelight. The Doors did produce at a respectable pace, in my opinion. They had two albums in 1967, one in 68, one in 69, one in 70, and then this one in 71. Uh, but at this time, Led Zeppelin were taking the music world by storm, immediately filling the vacuum left at the top by the Beatles, who had just broken up, uh, and Zeppelin had just released Led Zeppelin Three, which was their third album in a year and a half, so perhaps Rothschild had hoped that with the Beatles' breakup, the Doors would claim that throne, and he was uh, frustrated at the pace that things were moving at. Finally, Rothschild took issue with Jim's poor attendance record for rehearsals. Anyhow, they ended up parting ways at this stage, and at Rothschild's suggestion, the Doors decided to co-produce L.A. Woman, or what became L.A. Woman, with Bruce Botnick, who had been their engineer on the previous five albums. The band were also very frustrated with their label, Elektra Records, for releasing a compilation album called Thirteen, without the band's input or consent in order to have something in the shops for Christmas. The band were especially incensed by the cover, which featured Jim's face much larger than the others, and it was also a picture of his younger, thinner, clean-shaven self. You know, to Jim's credit, he always hated the whole lead singer eclipsing the rest of the band phenomena, and one time when they were introduced as Jim Morrison and The Doors, he made the guy come back out and say it right. 
Anyhow, despite the band's frustrations, they were contractually obligated to produce one more album for Elektra, so off they went, making L.A. Woman with Bruce. But first, they had two shows in Dallas on December 11th and a show in New Orleans on December 12th. The Dallas shows went pretty well, and they played the three that they had already worked on, Lover Madly, L.A. Woman, and Riders on the Storm, They even opened with an almost 10-minute version of Lover Madly that sounds pretty cool. They all sound neat, actually, in that loose embryonic stage. Unfortunately, the New Orleans show did not go so well. Jim got very drunk and ended up smashing his mic stand through the stage. This was at the warehouse in New Orleans, uh, prompting the band to agree to stop touring and focus on the album. So recording was done for L.A. Woman in December 1970 and January 1971 and took a total of just six days. They set up shop at their rehearsal space, The Doors Workshop, which was a two-story building on Santa Monica Boulevard about a block or two from the Sunset Strip, where their story began in a way um, about five, six years earlier with their time as the house band at the Whiskey A Go-Go. I mean, obviously it begins with Jim and Ray reconnecting on Venice Beach, but as far as um, their story as a four-piece unit, a lot of people would uh, trace it back to their time there at the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1966. Anyhow, so they set up shop at their workshop on Santa Monica Boulevard to record L.A. Woman. This was not only cheaper, but offered them a more relaxed setting than the confines of a traditional recording studio, And that sort of setting really suits the material that ended up on this album, or the material ended up the way that it did because of the setting. Bruce Botnick also deserves a lot of credit for that, though. He had a very relaxed approach to the sessions. There's a great interview with John Densmore you can find on YouTube where he talks about how the recording process had become very bloated and laborious, particularly on the soft parade which is two albums before this, uh, came out in 1969 with its extensive use of strings and horns. And uh, Densmore says that they wanted to try that sort of thing for a while and were glad that they did, but it still grew tiresome doing, you know, up to hundreds of takes of things. For L.A. Woman, Bruce told them that they knew what they were doing, so they'd just do five or six takes of everything. And he stuck to it, according to John. John references a story of a Miles Davis album that has a glaring mistake on it, and somebody asked Miles if they should take it out or do another take, and he said, no, the feel's too good. And Densmore says that was their sort of approach with L.A. Woman. And that kind of natural feel and acceptance of things being perfectly imperfect is something that I think the music industry has been missing for a long time now. You know, it is possible to overproduce and to engineer things within an inch of their life to the point that the songs lost all of its passion. And the Doors certainly did not make that mistake here with L.A. Woman. And their warehouse wasn't equipped with a vocal booth like a traditional studio would be, so Jim recorded his vocals in the bathroom, which actually worked out really well. It had some great natural echo to it. 
and they always brought in a bassist in the studio. And for LA Woman, they used Jerry Sheff, who was Elvis's bassist at the time. And Jim was a big Elvis fan, so that uh, stoked his enthusiasm for sure. And they also brought in Mark Benno as a rhythm guitarist for a few of the songs. Bruce Botnick later said that Morrison was a pleasure to work with, uh, worked hard and drank little. I think maybe the responsibility and opportunity of co-producing caused him to rise to the occasion. And Robbie Krieger later said that they had a lot of fun making LA Woman because Rothschild, who he calls the warden, wasn't there. So at this point, let's see how all of that translated into the music. We'll go track by track first and then some general thoughts and then give Spencer a call and then talk about legacy and scoring it and all of that at the end. Okay, so track one is The Changeling, and since Jim considered himself a poet and this was his swan song, I think it's only fair to read the lyrics for each song before we get into them. So the lyrics for The Changeling are as follows. It starts with some grunts and then get loose. I live uptown, I live downtown, I live all around. I had money and I had none. I've had money, and I've had none, but I've never been so broke that I couldn't leave town. I'm a changeling, see me change. I'm a changeling, see me change. I'm the air you breathe, food you eat, friends you greet in the sullen street. Whoa, see me change, see me change, get loose. I live uptown, I live downtown, I live all around. I had money, yeah, and I had none. I had money, yeah, and I had none, but I never been so broke that I couldn't leave town. Then guitar solo, well, I'm the air you breathe, food you eat, friends you greet in the sullen street, whoa, you gotta see me change, see me change, yeah, I'm leaving town on a midnight train, gotta see me change, and then it repeats the word change several times. I love Jim's grunts right off the bat. I think the Changeling has a great groove. It always reminds me a bit of Funky Town by Lips Inc. I love when Jim goes high in his blues shouter voice on the final See Me Change before the outro. And overall, the Changeling is a great tone setter for the album. It's kind of a weird and wonderful melting pot of sound. Just like Los Angeles itself, frankly, which also happens to be my favorite city in the world. And I've brought my Los Angeles uh, Starbucks You Are Here mug out of retirement for this episode. I had to retire it. Uh, broke my heart, but it got a crack in the handle and I didn't want it to totally break. So now it just sits on a bookshelf in my room for decoration, but I dusted it off and... Uh, I'm using it for my coffee today, so hopefully it'll be able to handle the strain. 
for those of you who aren't aware, they only sell them in the in the corresponding city. So I uh, I worked hard for that one. When I finally got to Los Angeles three years ago, I picked it up in a Starbucks on Rodeo Drive. So that was pretty cool. Anyhow, back to the album. So track two is Love Her Madly. Its lyrics are as follows. Don't you love her madly? Don't you need her badly? Don't you love her ways? Tell me what you say. Don't you love her madly? Want to be her daddy? Don't you love her face? Don't you love her as she's walking out the door? Like she did 1,000 times before. Don't you love her ways? Tell me what you say. Don't you love her as she's walking out the door? All your love. All your love. All your love. All your love. All your love is gone. So sing a lonely song of a deep blue dream. Seven horses seem to be on the mark. And then a little organ solo. Yeah, don't you love her? Don't you love her as she's walking out the door? All your love. All your love. All your love. Yeah, all your love is gone. So sing a lonely song of a deep blue dream. Seven horses seem to be on the mark. And then a guitar solo. And then over the outro. Don't you love her madly? Well, don't you love her madly? Don't you love her madly? I've always really liked Love Her Madly. It's always been one of my favorite Doors songs. I think Rothschild was out of line, uh, dismissively or derogatorily calling it cocktail music. Uh, I think it has a nice walking bass line. I love how John switches to 16th notes on the hi-hat during the All Your Love part. The end of Ray's organ solo is awesome, and it proves that they could write great concise songs with a pop appeal and would have had a bright future further into the 70s had Jim not passed away. Robbie wrote it while he was uh, bored during Jim's trial in Miami in September, and uh, I think it's a really great one. I really like the lyrics, and uh, it's kind of like a, a sequel to Hello, I Love You in a way as far as overall feel and lyrical message but they certainly sound distinct and uh you know they were ahead of the curve with the uh sexualization of the term daddy with their with the line want to be her daddy and you know Robbie was an excellent writer and wrote a lot of their most radio friendly stuff he's the one who originated light my fire he wrote the first verse in the chorus and then jim came up with the second verse so anyhow he did a great job once again with love her madly Track three is Been Down So Long. Its lyrics are as follows. Well, I've been down so goddamn long that it looks like up to me. Well, I've been down so very damn long that it looks like up to me. Yeah, why don't one you people 
come on and set me free. I said, warden, 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 won't you break your lock and key? I said, warden, 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 won't you break your lock and key? Yeah, come along here, mister. Come on and let the poor boy be. Baby, 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 won't you get down on your knees? Baby, 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 won't you get down on your knees? Come on, little darling. Come on and give your love to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been down so goddamn long that it looks like up to me. Well, I've been down so very damn long that it looks like up to me. Yeah, why don't one of you people come on, come on, come on and set me free? I don't uh, personally endorse taking the Lord's name in vain, but other than that, some great bluesy lyrics there from Jim, and obviously uh, influenced by his legal situation that was going on at the time with the warden, 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 won't you break your lock and key line. It has a great stomping feel from the others that really makes it sound just like Jim is singing from prison. John's four on the floor beat kind of makes you think of prisoners uh, marching in unison to the cafeteria or something. It's looser and bleaker than the military marching implied in five to one. And Jim's vocal delivery is very bitter and vicious. Track four is Cars Hiss By My Window. Its lyrics are as follows. The cars hiss by my window like the waves down on the beach. The cars hiss by my window like the waves down on the beach. I got this girl beside me, but she's out of reach. Headlight through my window, shining on the wall. Headlight through my window, shining on the wall. Can't hear my baby, though I call and call. Windows started trembling with a sonic boom. Windows started trembling with a sonic boom, boom. A cold girl kill you in a darkened room. And then on the outro, Jim uh, sings through his harmonica to make it sound like a, a slide guitar solo. Really cool. Ray said that Jim wrote it about he and Pam just sitting in their place in Venice Beach watching the cars go by. And it sounds just like a rare rainy afternoon in Los Angeles. You know, it doesn't rain too much there, obviously. The line that goes, a cold girl kill you in a darkened room can't help but make you think of the Manson family murders that had taken place just about a year and a half before this, knowing that the album is loosely about Los Angeles. Musically, Cars Hiss By My Window has a great hazy, sauntering kind of pulse to it like Jim rolled a joint and wandered out for a walk on the beach in the light rain. John plays with great touch with the brushes, and I really like that singing through the harmonica pseudo-guitar solo from Jim over the outro.
So track five, closing out side one, is the title track, L.A. Woman. And its lyrics are as follows. Well, I just got into town about an hour ago. Took a look around, see which way the wind blow. Where the little girls in their Hollywood bungalows. Are you a lucky little lady in the city of light? Or just another lost angel? City of night. City of night. City of night. City of night. L.A. woman. L.A. woman. L.A. woman Sunday afternoon. L.A. woman Sunday afternoon. L.A. woman Sunday afternoon. Drive through your suburbs, into your blues, into your blues, yeah, into your blues, into your blues. I see your hair is burning, hills are filled with fire. If they say I never loved you, you know they are a liar. Driving down your freeways, midnight alleys roam. Cops in cars, the topless bars, never saw a woman so alone. So alone. So alone. So alone. Motel money, murder madness. Let's change the mood from glad to sadness. Mr. Mojo Risen, Mr. Mojo Risen, Mr. Mojo Risen, Mr. Mojo Risen, got to keep on rising, Mr. Mojo Risen, Mr. Mojo Risen, Mojo Risen, got to Mojo Risen, Mr. Mojo Risen, got to keep on rising, rising, rising. Gone rising, rising. I'm gone rising, rising. I got a rising, rising. Well, rising, rising. I got a whoa, yeah, rising, rising. Oh, yeah. Well, I just got into town about an hour ago. Took a look around, see which way the wind blow. Where the little girls in their Hollywood bungalows. Are you a lucky little lady in the city of lights or just another lost angel? City of night. City of night, city of night, city of night, whoa, come on. L.A. woman, L.A. woman, L.A. woman, you are my woman. Little L.A. woman, little L.A. woman, L.A. L.A. woman, woman, L.A. woman, come on.
So it opens with a car engine revving, and then the band perfectly mimic a car accelerating to cruising speed, coming along Sunset Boulevard out of the hills and onto the Sunset Strip. It might just be the best song intro of all time. I think it's the greatest driving song of all time, bar none. Uh, It's one of Jim's best performances, vocally speaking, taking everything he learned from the blues and making it entirely his own, channeling it through something entirely the doors as opposed to a pure blues cover or replication. Really, it's a career highlight performance from all of them as individuals and collectively. The Mr. Mojo Ryzen, which is an anagram for Jim Morrison, uh, breakdown and subsequent build back up is genius. Mojo is a term for sexuality in the blues, so Densmore thought to have it build back up out of that breakdown like an orgasm. And in that interview I mentioned earlier, he talks about the challenge of getting back to the tempo they started at coming out of that build. Uh, Obviously, they weren't using click tracks or anything. They were just cutting it live in the room, and it had been a couple minutes since he heard that part, so he's trying to guesstimate getting back to his original tempo, and he thinks that he was rushing it a bit at the end. But again, that's that perfectly imperfect aspect of this album, where even if he is rushing it, it totally fits with the energy that they've built up with that explosion back into the verse uh, where they started at. Jerry Chef's bass playing on this is fantastic. He, uh, we deadheads refer to really huge sounding notes that Phil Lesh would play as fill bombs, and Jerry Chef has fill bombs throughout this song. And LA Woman is also genius songwriting depicting their city the city of angels as a woman the line i see your hair is burning hills are filled with fire obviously refers to the forest fires that can sometimes strike there the driving down your freeways midnight alleys roam can obviously be a bit of a double entendre when you're thinking about the song being about Los Angeles and a woman at the same time. Also, it presents an unbiased picture of the city, gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, it gives you that sunny feel, and it's kind of sparkly and alluring and sounds very expansive and full of possibilities, but then you've also got motel money, murder madness, and the forest fires and things of that nature. It also accurately reflects Los Angeles's variety of people, of places, its grandiosity. You know, the different sections could kind of be symbolic of all of the different geographic areas of Los Angeles, which are all quite distinct from each other and can even have different weather. Uh, that's one thing that I find really cool about LA. It can be several degrees different in different parts of town and sunny versus cloudy and all that just with how many physical features are influencing the weather there with the mountains and the ocean and everything in such close proximity and the divides between the sections can also symbolize how the the freeways kind of act as dividing lines between the different 
sections and that was part of the urban planning back in the uh, more sinister days of urban planning where they wanted to keep certain people in certain areas, the freeways kind of act as barriers between different sections of town. And in that sense, the contrasts between different parts of the song and the transitions can kind of mimic that function of the freeways, but then how they're still smooth and it's still a cohesive whole uh, represents the city as well. And when I say different sections, of course, you've got the I see your hair is burning part with this drum pattern. And then you've got the much longer Mr. Mojo Ryzen breakdown and subsequent build back up, which uh, transitions out of the the normal fast part like this. Anyhow, I can't say enough good things about the title track, and I think it's the best song about a particular city. And I don't just say that because Los Angeles is my favorite city and The Doors are one of my favorite bands. So then we flip it over to side two. Track six kicking off side two is La America. Its lyrics are as follows. Yeah. I took a trip down to La America to trade some beads for a pint of gold. I took a trip down to La America to trade some beads for a pint of gold. La America, La America, La America, La America, La America, La America. Come on, people, don't you look so down. You know the rain man's coming to town. Change the weather, change your luck, and then he'll teach you how to find yourself la america friendly strangers came to town all the people put them down but the women loved their ways come again some other day like the gentle rain like the gentle rain that falls i took a trip down to la america to trade some beads for a pint of gold i took a trip down to la america to trade some beads for a pint of gold La America, La America, La America, La America, La America, La America, La America.
So I think those are some cool lyrics, kind of like uh, Candyman by the Grateful Dead, but with a, a Latin flair. And indeed, Lamerica is uh, an abbreviation for Latin America, which is what it was originally titled. Uh, and there's some cheeky elements too with that change the weather, change your luck, and then he'll teach you how to. And then there's a pause and everyone knows what you're expecting the the second half of that rhyme to be. But then he says, find yourself. Kind of reminds me of a song called Strokin' by a guy named Clarence Carter. Anyhow, the intro and first verse of Lamerica would have you thinking it's a forgotten section from Celebration of the Lizard. And indeed, it does date back sort of to around the Waiting for the Sun era. They prepared it for the soundtrack to a film called Zabriskie Point, and it didn't end up getting used. And the recording that's on LA Woman is basically that version with some drum overdubs. And this one sounds like the real underbelly of Los Angeles and its surrounding areas now. You could almost picture the Manson family dancing around the fire to it at their ranch, or it being the soundtrack to their uh, murders. Track 7 is Hyacinth House and its lyrics are as follows. What are they doing in the Hyacinth House? What are they doing in the Hyacinth House to please the lions? in this day. I need a brand new friend who doesn't bother me. I need a brand new friend who doesn't trouble me. I need someone, yeah, who doesn't need me. I see the bathroom is clear. I think that somebody's here. I'm sure that someone is following me. Oh yeah. Why did you throw the jack of hearts away? Why did you throw the jack of hearts away? It was the only card in the deck that I had left to play. And I'll say it again, I need a brand new friend. And I'll say it again, I need a brand new friend. And I'll say it again, I need a brand new friend. The end. Sonically, Hyacinth House is necessarily soothing after Lamerica. Jim revives his crooning vocal style. I've once heard him described as psychedelic Sinatra, but now it's mixed with his husky blues voice. It sounds really nice. Lyrically, it's a beautifully strange mix of desperation and being at peace. You can't help but interpret lines like, I think that someone is following me, and it was the only card that I had left to play in the context of Jim's legal situation at the time. Track 8 is Crawling Kingsnake, the lone cover on the album, dates back uh, at least 30 years before L.A. Woman. Its lyrics are as follows. Well, I'm the crawling king snake, and I rule my den. I'm the crawling king snake, and I rule my den. 
yeah, don't mess around with my mate, going to use her for myself. Caught me crawling, baby, where the grass is very high. Keep on crawling until the day I die. Crawling king snake, and I rule my den. You better give me what I want. Going to crawl no more. Caught me crawling, baby, crawling around your door. Seeing everything I want, I'm going to crawl on your floor. Let's crawl, and I rule my den. Come on, give me what I want. I'm not going to crawl no more. Come on, crawl. Come on, crawl. Get out there on your hands and knees, baby. Crawl all over me, just like the spider on the wall. Ooh, we're going to crawl. One more. And then it repeats the, well, I'm the crawling king snake and I rule my den chorus. They actually used to play this a fair bit live in their early days, and they played it at the second New York show in January 1970, which we discussed in episode 29 back in January. It features a great biting solo from Robbie. I love how John's snare work mimics a rattlesnake, one of the uh, poisonous ones that you'd be most likely to find in the Los Angeles vicinity or the American Southwest generally. And Jim perfectly embodies the old bluesman that he always wanted to be on this. Track 9 is The Wasp, Texas Radio, and The Big Beat, and its lyrics are as follows. I want to tell you about Texas Radio and The Big Beat. Comes out of the Virginia swamps cool and slow, with cunning precision, and a backbeat narrow and hard to master. Some call it heavenly in its brilliance, others mean and rueful of the western dream. I love the friends I have gathered together on this thin raft. We have constructed pyramids in honor of our escaping. This is the land where the pharaohs died. The negroes in the forest, brightly feathered, they are saying, forget the night, live with us in forests of azure. Out here on the perimeter there are no stars. Out here we is stoned, immaculate. Now listen to this and I'll tell you about the heartache. I'll tell you about the heartache and the loss of God. I'll tell you about the hopeless night, the meager food our souls forgot. I'll tell you about the maiden with wrought iron soul. I'll tell you this, no eternal reward will forgive us now for wasting the dawn. I'll tell you about Texas radio and the big beat, soft driven, slow and mad like some new language. Now listen to this, I'll tell you about the Texas. I'll tell you about the Texas radio. I'll tell you about the hopeless night, wandering the western dream, tell you about the maiden with wrought iron soul. So some interesting lyrics there with some kind of twisted parallels to the Israelites escaping Egypt and wandering the desert. Uh, Obviously, Negroes isn't a politically correct term anymore, but We are talking 50 years ago, and I don't believe Jim or any of the Doors were racist whatsoever. They uh, had 
black musicians who they looked up to join them on stage many times. Uh, Albert King at that Vancouver 1970 show we mentioned earlier, for instance. Uh, anyhow, this is another one that they'd had kicking around for a while. They play it, or at least a primitive version of it, at the Hollywood Bowl show in July of 68 that's been released on CD and DVD. The instruments sound like some sinister carnival traveling through the desert east of Los Angeles. Jim's voice sounds distant and huge, like he's some invisible public address announcer in the desert or, uh, you know, delivering a demented Ten Commandments. I love the effects on John's very high-pitched toms toward the end of the song as well. Finally, the album closes with Riders on the Storm, which opens with the sounds of rain and thunder, as you just heard, and its lyrics are as follows. Riders on the storm, riders on the storm, into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown, like a dog without a bone, an actor out on loan, riders on the storm. There's a killer on the road. His brain is squirming like a toad. Take a long holiday. Let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. Girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. The world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love your man. And then Robbie and Ray both take solos. And then Riders on the Storm, Riders on the Storm, Into this house we're born, Into this world we're thrown, Like a dog without a bone, An actor out on loan, Riders on the Storm, Riders on the Storm, Riders on the Storm, Riders on the Storm, Riders on the Storm. And after I cut it off there, Ray does a beautiful little run mimicking rainfall, but that's far beyond my meager self-taught piano skills, unfortunately. Also, those thunder sounds are ones that I captured myself on vacation in Orlando two years ago. So the song opens with the sound of rain and thunder, like a storm blowing in off the Pacific and across the desert. Then the beautiful piano work from Ray while John and Jerry Sheff set an enchanting groove, another nominee for best intro ever. Robbie's guitar has great vibrato on Riders on the Storm, makes it feel nice and wet like the, the thunderstorm that it's taking place in. And he takes a great atmospheric solo, followed by a nice jazzy solo by Ray on the Fender Rhodes. 
and Ray closes his solo with the rainfall imitating run that he does on the intro. And then John uh, resets the beat for the final verse and outro, and it's the epitome of the, the chef's kiss. It sounds a little bit like this. And then the rain and thunder ring out one final time after the outro to bring the album to a close. I think Riders on the Storm is one of Jim's very best vocal performances. It's equal parts hopeful and bleak, incredibly haunting and esoteric. He almost sounds like a ghost. It's very eerie knowing that he died a few months later. The whole song almost sounds like he had a premonition that he was near the end. He recorded a faint, whispery track to layer over the main vocal track, which helps lend it that uh, ghostly feel. And fittingly, that whisper track is actually the final thing that he recorded with The Doors. It's simultaneously Jim's thesis on the meaning, or lack thereof, of life, with the, into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown, like a dog without a bone, an actor out on loan part, which uh, it's pretty sad that he felt that way when he ended up leaving us, but he certainly knew how to capture some of our our darker feelings that we all experience from time to time, and I think everybody, myself included, can relate to that verse now and then. Uh, it's also a nod to his idea of making a movie about a killer hitchhiker with the killer on the road verse. And really beneath it all, it's a love song to Pam, the girl you gotta love your man verse. Uh, brilliant writing and a very fitting bookend for their career, uh, being the final song on the final album while he was alive. And fittingly, it was written by the four of them together. And if L.A. Woman is the best driving song ever, I would say Riders on the Storm is the best song about a particular type of weather that's uh, ever been written. Uh, better than the Rain song by Led Zeppelin even, uh, for songs about rain, better than Let It Snow or any other Christmas song, way better than I'm Walking on Sunshine. Sorry. So that draws the album to a close. And now for some general observations about the album before we give Spencer a call. I think L.A. Woman really oozes the relaxed confidence of the approach that it was made with. The album cover is beautifully simplistic and perfectly matches the polished yet rugged sonic palette and overall vibe of the album and reflects the relaxed confidence as well. Jim is bearded, Robbie has a kind of halfway beard, like it could be long stubble, hasn't decided if he's going to grow it out yet, just kind of that 
cavalier rough rider look john has a great chevron mustache which i'm working on one of those right now myself and ray's sideburns seem extra long and large it's also usc trojans colors which is a a nice subtle nod to the city even if it wasn't intentional got the kind of a bit rustier version of the cardinal red that usc uses as the backdrop and then just says doors not even the doors in white above a yellow sort of rounded rectangle frame with their faces just in black and yellow and then beneath it la woman in black with their faces being just black and yellow it makes it more artistic and mysterious looking i think and it almost looks like it could be a most wanted poster in the roadhouse that they were traveling to on the previous album morrison hotel with the song roadhouse blues uh the picture frame with their faces in it isn't centered vertically it's closer to the top and it might even be slightly closer to the right than the left which again mimics the sort of laid back feel and approach of the album overall and the way that their heads are staggered like very approximated uneven stair steps is great as well and if you squint at it a little their heads kind of look like the hollywood hills with the sun going down behind them all of this as i say reflects the overall vibe and approach of the album as well as the city that it's loosely about LA Woman is a great synthesis of their influences, especially the blues, of course, uh, which suited Jim's voice really well at this stage of their career. One thing that I love about this album, and I think it's something that contributes to its staying power and continued appeal, is that it never sounds like it's trying too hard, trying to win you over, trying to convince you of some message or worldview or any of that. It just sounds like a band very secure in themselves, having a good time, and we have the privilege of being flies on the wall watching them jam. It's like a Jerry Garcia quote that I came across about the Grateful Dead. He said, We're like licorice. Not everybody likes licorice, but the people who like licorice really like licorice. And LA Woman sounds like the doors being at peace with that sort of realization. It paints a fantastic picture of Los Angeles. Ray said that they didn't go into making the album with some sort of concept, trying to make it about the city or anything. They just realized as they were going along that the whole thing was about L.A., either directly or indirectly. And the album represents the weird and wonderful diversity of the city, Uh, the car driving theme throughout with cars hiss by my window and la woman and even in the changeling about never being so broke that i couldn't leave town although it talks about leaving on a midnight train but still um and then riders on the storm there's a killer on the road you know obviously cars are a big part of los angeles and it's uh kind of the city that started the whole freeway thing and they managed to weave that sort of theme throughout without it being obvious or potentially cheesy like uh, 
I don't know, a song like Little Deuce Coop by the Beach Boys, which is a song that I love, by the way. It used to be my ringtone, but you know what I mean. And if your next question was, what's my current ringtone? It's get off of my cloud right at the line. The telephone is ringing. I say, hi, me, who is it there on the line? Except I usually don't answer, so I don't say hi, it's me. (laughs) What makes LA Woman such a great album about Los Angeles is that it's an honest depiction of the city. Just like we talked about with Working Man's Dead back in November, uh, being a very honest depiction of America, the LA Woman is a very honest picture of LA. You know, it's glitzy and grimy. There's touristy Hollywood, opulent Beverly Hills, out there, Venice Beach, rough Compton, and so on. And they all somehow form this perfectly imperfect mosaic of a city. And the album, as I've mentioned a few times now, expertly captures that notion of perfectly imperfect and diverse elements and styles that you might not initially think would work well together, but they do. And the best part is that they never mention any of these places apart from saying Hollywood bungalows in the title track and saying LA. They don't talk about all these different sections of town, but you can feel them in the music. You could get an old Mustang or some other convertible and drive around Los Angeles one sunny day and feel like you got all of these songs based on the different places that you go through along the way. You might have to play the album a few times to actually get to all the different areas with the traffic, but, you know. And not only is that points for creativity and uh, class with it not being a potentially corny travelogue-style song, it makes it easy enough to apply it to whatever your city is and have it still feel relatable. And as I said in the track-by-track observations, the title track especially is a perfect depiction of the city, starting with a car engine, the energy pulsing through it with that groove, the long and sprawling nature of the song, mimicking how spread out Los Angeles is, the distinct sections that come together to make a beautiful whole. It also functions as a sort of closing love letter from Jim to the city. It's almost like he was having a premonition here too with the line, if they say I never loved you, you know they are a liar. It could also just be because he knew he was going to Paris soon and that people would talk about that. And he knew that he was going to at the time of recording this, but he hadn't told the rest of the band yet. But anyhow, the the song LA Woman expresses Jim's simultaneous love and disdain for the city. I think it's a real shame that they never got the chance to tour behind LA Woman and play these songs because I think they would have really lent themselves well to live performance as evidenced by the brief taste that we got with those three December 1970 shows. This was also right around the time that large-scale touring really took off and I think they easily could have sold out arena tours throughout the 70s had Jim survived and gotten his drinking under control and gotten in a better headspace. They probably could have had some really cool set lists as well. The Doors of the 21st Century set lists 
uh, when Ray and Robbie went on tour in the early 2000s and I saw them on one of those tours with my dad, uh, those set lists prove how good a set list featuring all six of their albums can be. It also would have been fascinating to see where they would have taken their sound had Jim survived. They always proved committed to evolving and pushing the boundaries, so I have no doubt that we missed out on some fantastic stuff that probably ended up not being created by anybody. Uh, they're that singular and unique in the history of recorded music that I don't think their potential future albums uh, were in the cards for anybody else. Same applies to whatever we missed out on that Jimi Hendrix never got to write and record with his untimely death and same thing with whatever Led Zeppelin might have ended up creating had Bonham not passed away. So at this point, let's give my brother Spencer Cropper a call and see what he thinks of this album. Okay, welcome back to the show, Spencer Cropper. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Of course, man. So you're here this week because L.A. Woman by the Doors turns 50 today. Uh, yeah, 50 years of a great album. Um, you know, I remember listening to this um, as a kid, you know, uh, and, and of course, like Riders on the Storm, L.A. Woman, some of the best Doors tracks of their career and, and some of the last, right? So, uh, just a phenomenal album. I'm looking forward to diving into it. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the very last and, uh, riders on the storm, um, that whispery vocal track that Jim recorded as an overdub. So there's two vocal tracks through the whole thing. Yeah. That actually ended up being the last thing he ever recorded with them. Wow. Which is such a fitting kind of spooky send off. Yeah. Haunting. Mm -hmm. So what are your, uh, general impressions about the album? Uh, the best songs on the album are phenomenal. Uh, LA woman riders on the storm. Super good. Um, I'm a fan. I really like car hiss by my window specifically like listening to it the last week really like it like just a, a great blues track me too um and then a lot of like been down so long that stuff it sounds unfinished to me which it, it was right yeah well i mean they felt it was finished enough i guess because they put it up but yeah they they kind of went for the they wanted that more relaxed live in the studio feel uh, because the soft parade, especially, which is two albums before this with all the heavy orchestration um, really got to them time wise and it's expensive and just becomes laborious and kind of annoying by the end of it. Right. And 
they uh, actually had friction with Paul Rothschild, who produced their first five albums at the initial rehearsals for LA Woman. Um, he called Love Her Madly cocktail music. And he said after, like, he said it as, like, trying to poke the bear to inspire them to write something better. But it just led to kind of a blow up. And also he was uh, pretty down because this was about a month after Janis Joplin's death. And he was close with her and had worked with her on her second album. So um, they parted ways. And Bruce Botnick, who had been the engineer, uh, co-produced this with them. And I was reading something just today. I think, I think it was Robbie said that was uh, part of what made it kind of fun and relaxed to make because the the warden wasn't there anymore. So before this, though, Rothschild was the producer of all of their stuff. Yeah. Wow. Cool. I did not know that. And then I, that's kind of interesting, though, that they booted him out and didn't bring in another producer. That it was like, okay, we'll co-produce it with with oh that guy. He's behind the desk. Let's use him. Yeah, well, and they uh, they made their rehearsal space on Santa Monica Boulevard uh, in West Hollywood, just kind of a two-story warehouse. They made a makeshift studio in there, which also made it feel more relaxed and homey and not like the pressure of a traditional recording studio and also less expensive. You know, in that way, it reminds me of Let It Be Naked. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of by like intention, but I just don't think the songs are as grasping. Um, you know, it's like, it's a good attempt at it. And the best songs on it are like, great. I love them. They sound so good. And I'm like, I wish there were like two or three other songs of that caliber here. Mm -hmm. No, I get that for sure. Um, and actually I believe, Morrison was living out of a motel a block or two away at the time. So he uh, would like after the recording, just stop in at some like bar between there and the motel. And just, so uh, he was quite focused and Bruce Botnick actually said that he was a real treat to work with and that he put in a lot of hours and, spent a lot of time at the studio so um because i guess that had been one of rothschild's friction points with him as well that he couldn't convince him to attend rehearsals regularly well and it's it's funny because rothschild sounds right on the songs thing like i do think he was right to poke the bear and be like come on guys write two more hits Mm -hmm. like i i think that should be expected that on an album like this that there's you know almost half of them should be that level. Yeah. Cause that this was November, 1970 when that happened. And the three songs that they had were LA woman riders on the storm and lover madly. And he loved the big two and made the little barb about love her madly, which I would probably say is the third best. So who knows what he thought of the other seven when he finally heard them. Yeah, like Lover Madly doesn't bother me. I th- I think it's a good song. Like I'm happy with it on the album. But interesting that if those were my 3, I'd be like, yeah, Love Her Madly is just not as good as those other two. Mm-hmm. 
the other seven songs just kind of sound like standards, like, you know, like the, not in a bad way, but they're, they're very textbook blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't to, to crap on the other seven. They're still enjoyable songs. Just obviously there's a big gap between the, the peaks of the album and the rest, uh, which I mean, in the grand, in the overall history of music, that's probably more the rule and artists who are able to put out albums where the whole thing is almost at the level of the best songs are the exception. Absolutely. It's not a, a rarity that an album, you know, it's got the hits on it and then the other songs you don't pay much attention to. Um, but right. Like once you, once you've heard albums where you're like, wow, you know, that's exceptional. Um, when you compare it to like this, you're like, eh, I feel like, you know, to me, it feels like two separate things. The top three songs sound like band was working with a producer was trying to make hits, like wanted it to be commercially, you know, viable, successful. Mm-hmm. And the other seven, it's not that they're bad, but it really does sound to me like a band in a rehearsal space. Um, just putting the mics up and enjoying what they're doing and having fun, but almost like relaxing in the way where it's like, Oh, we used to, you know, play every night and have to play, you know, songs that weren't our best because we didn't have them yet. And they liked playing blues and, you know, doing their own renditions on stuff. And I think the other tracks on the album sound to me like that, like they're just enjoying themselves playing the music. Mm Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I also read they only took six days to record it. So that would explain why it it has that. It's still kind of raw, which is part of its strength. And also it could be seen as a weakness. Yeah, it depends what you're looking for. I mean, the thing is, is that when it's raw, there's not a lot of ear candy. There's not like, you know, part after part that is keeping you hooked in the song. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, right, like, music since LA woman, right? Like you, you do see like a progression where it's like everything sounds so glittery and produced. And when you hear something that's raw like this, you're almost caught off guard. Cause it's like, you can't really compare them. Like, I don't think that now, a you know, a band on a major label would be able to go in and do some of those tracks. Like they'd be like, okay, we need to get writers in here and get, some stronger songs or, or even independent people like it's, you know, they have an album, but it's like, there's a theme to it. And to have something like this, where it's like, there's a break in the theme and it's like these, and then these like separate, separate pieces of the pie. It's just different to hear. And, and it sounds a little dated, but in like a cool vintagey way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It definitely has a, a kind of rough rider aesthetic to it like a an urban uh renegade like, kind of thing i mean it is it, it it kind of feels like la early 70s yeah right and the doors i mean that was part of their strength is they were kind of raunchy it's like oh you know they're la but they're not like glitzy sunset strip right like, like yeah or, or flowery or anything it was like they're those guys are hardcore yeah like like they're just you know, blues guys from, from LA. That's how they do it. 
Mm-hmm. I also, Robbie said he was glad that it ended up being their last album because it sounded like unadulterated doors to him. Like just authentic. If you whittle them down to their roots. Like he liked this as the final thing they ever did. Yeah. Like not that he was like, Oh, I didn't, he didn't want to keep doing it, but that he was like, it's a good send off. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. I, I mean, it's almost like a, a bookend, like where, you know, at the start, it's kind of like introducing you at the end. It's kind of like back to the introduction. It's like, see what we were saying the whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's, it's kind of like you, the first time you heard the doors, it was, you know, that bluesy kind of first album, right. When the music's over, um, soul kitchen, mm. right. Just that true blues, a bit more produced, but also that sounded very much like the sixties. And this sounds very much like the seventies to me. Yeah. Uh, when the music's over is on strange days, the second one, but oh, yeah, my bad. No, gosh. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think it said Jim was really like it, it ended on a high note for him because he was really happy that they finally made a pure blues album or pure blues rock. Well, that's good. I mean, that's good that, that, to think that they're all satisfied in some way with, with how it ended. Mm-hmm. And and not like they at the time planned for it to be the last one. They knew that he was moving to Paris for a while with his girlfriend, but they had talked about doing more when he eventually came back. Um, he was awaiting sentencing for the Miami incident, which is part of the, the backstory of this too. he, like they were on tour for most of the first like two thirds of 1970. And then after the Isle of Wight festival in August, Jim had his trial in Miami and got convicted in September. So this was made while he was awaiting sentencing for that. And that theme kind of runs through the lyrics a bit, uh, like in been down, been down so long with, uh, warden 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 won't you bring break the lock here yeah well and and, i mean just other lines right like i've i've been down so long that it looks like up for me Mm -hmm. right i mean it's a great line and it's like wow like you really got into so much trouble that it's like that's almost looking good for me i gotta go somewhere new (laughs) yeah well and cars hits by my window i mean it's Ray said it's about like him and his girlfriend just sitting there in their place in Venice beach, watching the cars go by. Right. But you could also imagine somebody who's in prison singing that, like if it had a view of the highway, like, yeah, the cars hiss by my window, but it's not like I can get in one and go anywhere. Yeah. And like cool imagery, like you can almost picture him at home, like afraid, right. He's awaiting sentencing, but afraid somebody's going to show up. You know, mm-hmm. that it's like somebody's coming. You know, yeah. that's that's immediately the feel I got from it. Yeah, like you never know which set of headlights is going to be the cops coming to pick you up. Yeah, 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 for sure. And love her madly. Actually, Robbie wrote while he was uh, bored during Jim's trial. He he has some tricks up his sleeve. Like you know, some of the songs that he wrote during their time are just so cool but funny how that's the one that got called cocktail music because it's like that's 
I feel like that's kind of the appeal of it is it's like, yeah, yeah. Is doing that. Yeah, exactly. It's like when people like crap on Zeppelin for Diamaka or something, or like, Oh, that's a terrible attempt at reggae or something. It's just cool to hear their version of it. Like I don't need them to sound exactly like Bob Marley. If they're going to do it, I want it to sound like Zeppified reggae. Likewise. Yeah. Like if I want to hear pure reggae, I'm listening to Bob Marley. Yeah, and if I wanted to hear pure cocktail music, I wouldn't listen to the doors, but it's cool. But their take the on it is is cool. Yeah, sprinkle some of it in, it's all good. Yeah. Um now where does this rank on um your personal favorite doors albums? Um I would probably say second to the debut. And that's usually where I see it ranked. I think I don't think they ever made a, and I say this as a guy who has the doors in his top five to like seven artists of all time. I don't think they ever made a totally like perfect or close to perfect album. Like even the debut, there's a couple on the back half where it's like, I like them, but I don't, consistently listen to it all the way through like sometimes i'll skip ahead to the end yeah um and then strange days would be the only other one that has a peak as high as these with when the music's over but uh it's a bit <laughs> i was gonna say it's a bit too strange in certain spots like it it's it's strong too it would be third probably it would be between Strange Days and LA Woman for a second for me, but I would probably give it to LA Woman. And then um, Waiting for the Sun had the potential to be better than it ended up being if they had put the complete celebration of the lizard as its own side as Jim wanted to. Uh, I would rank it a bit higher, but it does get big points for having Hello, I Love You. Um, oh, and like Spanish Caravan and um, Five to like One, yeah. I mean, those are cool songs. I really like Five to One. Mm-hmm. Uh, Soft Parade uh, is very interesting. Uh, I wouldn't. Other I wouldn't. than Touch Me, I'm yeah. I'm you know I'm not really big on that one. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, I like Wild Child, but it's a bit of a mixed bag that one. Uh, or it's quite different from the rest. Like it scratches a certain itch, but it's hard to compare it to the others. And Morrison Hotel, it, LA Woman's like a continuation of it and you know, like going further down that bluesy rabbit's hole. Yeah. Uh, but I think LA Woman captures that vibe more naturally. That's a good point. I like Morrison Hotel, but I think it's because it's one of the first like CDs I bought. Okay. Like I saw and I was like, oh, I like the doors. Let's see what this record is. And of Mm -hmm. course, like I kind of had this perception of music that like every album's like equally good when I was like younger. Like I was like, oh, every record I pick up is great because everything lying around was like a really good record. And then I, I remember that record being like, infatuated with it 
um, and playing it. And, and uh, our dad was like, why are you playing that? Like they've got better stuff. Like <laughs> we skipped that, you know? And I was like, no, this is, this is the best. This is the best thing I've ever heard by them. <laughs> listening to the spy on repeat and dad's like, but light my fire out already. Yeah, exactly. But it, it kind of has a nostalgic um, thing for me. Like, I, I think we can all agree the debut is their strongest record. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know if LA woman would be my second. Um, it might be uh, strange days. Just because the, I feel like love me two times. And what else is on that? Moonlight drive. Uh, yeah. People, strange. Strange. people are strange. I think that, I don't like, I think some people overlook that. I really think that's a great song. Yeah, I agree. And it's super short. It's like two minutes and 10 seconds. It's mm-hmm. just so concise. It's so good. Yeah, maybe I would have LA Woman 3. Yeah, and then it's like LA Woman and um, Morrison Hotel are kind of same area for me. Like, I would almost be more happy with them if they were a double album together. And it was like just a bunch of that feel. Yeah. Yeah. Or if they, or if it was the best of the two put in one. But having, having said that they do both have their own unique kind of vibe to them within that blues rock arena. I, I hear you. I think it, his voice is so distinct, Jim Morrison, that um, anytime I hear the doors, it's like it immediately takes me to that same like, wow, these guys are are reckless. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another. So that's another thing. Speaking of his voice on Morrison Hotel, that kind of takes place as his voice was in a transitional stage, like he was losing the higher end and it was starting to get more husky. And then LA woman, it's like when he's really settled into that, his new like Husky old blues man type voice. Yeah. I mean, he still hit some, some highs on, uh, on LA woman that I was like surprised by. Yeah. Like on the changeling, he has one towards the end on one of the times when he goes, see me change. It's pretty high. Well, and like LA woman, the, I I mean, I know they're howls um, for the most part, but still, I mean, it's impressive and he sounds really good like this, right? Like you, you wish that you had got 20 more years of that voice doing its thing over all these great songs. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why um, I like the, uh, the Detroit, show from may in 1970 better than any of the individual ones i think from the new york run in january because uh his he's still like adapting to his new range and style there but by detroit it's kind of like the la woman voice where he's like it's settled down and he still can get to the highs in the new way but it's more consistent um, I'm not super familiar. I know I've listened to some of Detroit and uh, I don't know about New York. Okay, well, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's uh, there's like they did four shows at the uh, 
the felt forum, which is like a theater beneath Madison square garden instead of just uh, doing one in the garden, which is cool, except it was two shows, two nights in a row. So by the fourth show, his voice is like blown. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, strain. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to rank the songs on LA woman, what would your, your ranking look like? Uh, Riders on a Storm, L.A. Woman, Lover Madly, um, Car Hiss by My Window, Hyacinth House, uh, Texas Radio and the Big Beat. Um, I don't know, maybe the changeling then been down so long. La America and crawling King snake is my least favorite. Okay. We're, we have like the same, I would say up till Texas radio and the big beat. And then, uh, I would have crawling King snake above been down so long in La America. But other than that, our list is pretty similar. I something about crawling king snake. I really just did not enjoy. Fair enough. Like seeing the name, I'm remembering last time listening to it and being like, I really am not liking this. <laughs> <laughs> and the other ones were uh, well, Hyacinth House was cool because the the twelve string sound. I don't know. It was like it was kind of like a blend of the Doors, but with like you know, that bird's kind of flavor to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it didn't sound like the doors to me just because of that. Cause it was so different. Yeah. Well, I, um, speaking of the lyrical themes with his trial and everything, the line, why did they throw the like Jack of hearts away? It was, yeah. the, it was the only card in the deck I had left to play that sort of feeling of like I've exhausted all my options and now I've just got to wait for my sentencing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a sullen thing. Like the 12 string is such a happy sound, but the song is like, yeah, I have no options. I have no way out of this. Just, you know, we're just stuck. Mm -hmm. I also, um, in the changeling, one of the lines struck me as especially, uh, well, it hit extra close to home with the pandemic, uh, shutting down travel, the line I've had money, I've had none, but I've never been so broke that I couldn't leave town. Yeah. That's a great line with, first of all, just in general, the, um, the theme and blues music of, you know, like getting out of town and like, running away train travel especially and all that sort of yeah running away exactly and how that's true that like even if you're not doing super well as long as you know that you have enough money squirreled away that if you suddenly snap and like i need a weekend away you have enough to like make that happen you're like okay it's not too too bad but then 
If you have less than that, you feel pretty, pretty, pretty stuck. Yeah. And, or to have that, that ability taken away from you by whatever means, whether it's the possibility of uh, being imprisoned, like he was dealing with or a pandemic shutting you down or just being really broke. Yeah. I, I am right with you that when I heard that line, I was like, Oh, that is a great line. It's like so true to the blues Right. Like when you go back to the core, it's kind of like this idea that there's nothing that you can do that's so bad that the next place you go will be like waiting to arrest you. Yeah. Like it's like you can always, you know, find your way out. Right. You just hop on a train. You don't even know where you're going. Um, that's the the imagery of it. And, you know, right. Like a lot of these stories with blues music, especially bands like The Doors or, you know, British blues bands whatever form of it it is right they didn't live that story of oh i'm broken america in the south and i'm hopping on a train but they've they've taken that essence and now it's like <laughs> i'm getting arrested for public indecency and i'm in a rock band but i'm broke and i'm stuck and i'm still sorry about it right and mm-hmm. but like the lyrics are just great yeah, for sure. What do you think? Uh, which song do you think has the strongest lyrics on the album? Oh. Uh, I feel like LA Woman. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Like, Riders on the Storm, I give the slight edge as an overall song, not even because the instruments are like more impressive per se. It just captures that vibe so well and is one of the best like mood pieces I could think of in rock. Yeah, it's like that's such a a, a song that relies on the music to establish the mood and then Right. Like his lyrics are quite simple to me. It's just that theme of riders on the storm. Um, and it's like, it just fits the music perfectly. And it's like, this is a place when you listen to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, in some ways it's like a love song hidden within the whole thing with the, the second verse of girl, you got to love your man. Yeah. But, and then it's got Jim's kind of, uh, it's like you're sad for him, but his philosophy on life with the, into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown, like a dog without a bone, an actor out on loan. Like it's, it's sad that anybody feels that way, but I think it's relatable to all of us from time to time. Yeah. Like Jim, a lot of the time found a way to express like everybody's deepest thoughts of desperation without a lot of words. Um, I also was talking about this um, earlier today that um, in LA woman in that part where it changes where he's rhyming Higher and fire and liar again. Oh, 
yeah hills are filled with fire if they say i never loved you you know they are a liar yeah 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 um and it's funny because i was talking about this um to somebody how i find like when i write songs that i have to convince myself to use a different phrase to describe something Mm -hmm. especially if i'm writing them quickly like if i write like three or four in a week there will be lines that it's almost like they're shared between the songs like like the example I was using was like, hold me tight. That's something that I think sounds really good with the right chords under it. And just, it's a line that makes sense in a lot of contexts. It's like a staple, mm-hmm. but it might not be a staple for a lot of writers. It might just be for me because a lot of the music that I enjoy, you know, Beatles, there are tons of other examples where they say, hold me tight or some form of that. Mm. And that I I was listening to this and I was like, I don't know if I've ever heard somebody rhyme fire with liar so obviously. And that the two songs that I can think of off the top of my head are both by the doors. Yeah. With well, those. And it's, it's almost like an homage to like, we're so far removed from the debut doors that it's almost ironic that he's singing fire and liar now. Yeah, I that never even occurred to me, but that's such a cool, like another bit of closure with that rhyme being a highlight of the song that closes side one of the debut, and then likewise with the one that closes side one of the final album. Right, and that's like, right, I didn't think about that of their placement or anything. I just thought it's like, well, he sounds older, and it's kind of that thing, right, where there are artists that are like, I don't want to play my hits from 20 years ago because I wrote them when I was a kid and I don't agree with some of the stuff that, like, it's not what I want to sing, right? It's like John Lennon saying he didn't want to sing She Loves You when he's 30. Right. Or I saw in one of uh, one of Zeppelin's press conferences when they were releasing the uh, the 2007 reunion on like CD and DVD, uh, somebody asked Plant about how he has a similar relationship with Stairway, and he said, uh, "Maybe I was just trying to figure out what the hell I was talking about." And then everybody laughs, and he says, "Every other fucker is," because obviously he's aware of the like incredible amount of attempts at analyzing those lyrics there have been over the years. Right, and it's like that's the irony of it is that like everybody wants to write a song that's good enough to be remembered. And that for a lot of people, the one that does it, or, you know, one of the songs that's remembered, they kind of grow to not like, they're like, Oh, why do you like this one? You should check out the stuff I'm doing now. It's, it's better. They're like, no, no, we're going to stick with stairway. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you're like, I don't want to sing this anymore. And so it's kind of like, it's just ironic. Anytime you hear somebody that's like 50 singing a song they wrote when they were 20 or 30 years younger and you can tell they don't really connect with it anymore mm-hmm. it's a it's the greatest thing is when you don't get sick of the song and you're happy to play it every day for the rest of your life but there are certain songs that people are like i don't want to play that mm-hmm. um like like the one in the the eagles um take it to the limit that randy meisner sang and he, there was this big fuss where he was like, I don't want to sing it. It's hard for me to sing. And I don't want to sing it every concert. 
Mm-hmm. And Glenn Fry was like, you're singing it. Like, I don't want to sing Take It Easy, but I do it because it's a hit and that's what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that I basically led to him quitting the band as he was like, I don't want to sing that song. And they were like, you're singing it. Like, yeah, it's not an option. I never knew that. That's that's one of my favorites. When uh, Don Felder was playing at Epcot when I was in Disney World two years ago, uh, he played it and did a pretty decent job with it. Oh, he sings it now? Yeah. Well, he, he was by himself, but I think he was the like he had other guys with him who yeah. aren't Eagles, obviously. I can't remember if he was the one who sang that. It might have been some other guy. Probably was him, though. Like his voice is held up so well. I heard him doing Yes, It Is by the Beatles, and he sounds like an angel. Really? <laughs> sounds so good. It's And I don't know if I've ever heard another cover of that song, and if I have, it has not compared. Yeah. And that one was great. And yeah, his voice, I always wonder why he didn't sing that song from the beginning. He has the range for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was kind of like the feature for Randy. Like that's the one he sang and he he didn't want to anymore. But it's kind of like back to the irony where it's just like hearing Jim rhyme fire and liar well, reminds me of everything there is to know about the doors. Yeah, well, and it's also a neat little nod on his part to Robbie because Robbie actually uh, wrote light my fire for the most part. Like he came up with the, the basic, like, you know, chord structure and everything and the, the first verse and the chorus. And the first verse is the one that has fire and liar. And then Jim wrote the second verse, the time to hesitate is through no time to wallow in the mire. Try now we can only lose and our love become a funeral pyre. And they were all kind of like, come on, Jim, really? Like always with the death stuff, like it's just a love song. And he's like, no, guys, trust me, it'll be good. Oh, that's funny. No, because I was I was trying to figure out if he was saying fire or pyre in um in the in LA Woman. Oh, yeah, it's it's fire because I see your hair is burning, hills are filled with like talking about forest fires in Okay, because I was hearing Pyre and then I was like talking about this and my girlfriend was like, is that even a word? And I was like, it's definitely a word because Jim uses it. Like I've heard it and it sounds fine, but I'm like, I don't know why he always brings it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I looked it up. It's a real word. It is a word. It's just like nobody uses it. Yeah, nobody uses Meyer either. I love the use of of Meyer. Uh, That. I love that line. The fact that he uses those two in the same verse, like on their debut album. is It's outrageous. And I was talking about how like the words he uses together sometimes sound like gibberish because he's using such obscure words. Obscure words. Um, but when you, when you kind of condense it down into the, the core meaning of it, his lyrics are brilliant, I think. And I mean, has anybody ever come across more as a person in that role as the singer, right? Like you hear, right. There's, there's like the great singers, like technically versus the great singers on how they connect with you. Right. Like Dylan, it was about how the song connected. It wasn't if he hit the note that he planned, not that he can't sing, but that was the appeal of what he did. Right. Like you talk about Lennon versus McCartney, Lennon couldn't hit, all of the notes Paul could, but the way he hit them 
is what makes people go, he's my favorite. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because um, in the, you know, with all the personality type stuff, it's a, it's not an exact science guessing celebrities types and unless you've had them take the test like nobody knows but um dylan um a lot of people surmise to be an infj and i usually see jim typed as an infp which uh as an infp he would be leading with introverted feeling uh which dylan would not be using and i think yeah dylan has that that connection piece but it's more like you're connecting with the song and how good the story is than with him himself like he he feels like at an arm's length from his work you know whereas jim you feel like you know him as a person just from listening to the doors catalog oh i 100 percent agree i think because dylan's such a good songwriter he almost mocked the importance of a singer like there's some stuff where it's like most producers would be like, do another take of that. And he'd be like, no, it's perfect. And he, I mean, he does know when to do it and when not. Um, but because of that, it's almost like, he's like the song's so good. It doesn't matter that I hit the note exactly how I want, or you want, or anybody does. Whereas with Jim, like the song, when you hear it, no matter what it is, it kind of sounds like you've been transported to his world. Yeah, and I've I usually see Jerry Garcia typed as an INFP as well, and they're so good at that. Uh, um, like make making you feel what they feel, and like hitting that emotional connection on that level. But it's not in a uh, like overdoing team building exercises kind of connection. It's like there's so much emotional potency in what they're expressing that you can't help but like feel it too. And that's one of uh, Jerry's biggest or was one of his biggest strengths as a singer, I think is you feel that same connection to him or whatever characters uh, he's talking about in, in the, the lyrics that Hunter gave him to work with. We talked about that in the Terrapin station episode, how, you feel like Terrapin is a place that you're visiting and like, you know, the storyteller and the sailor and the soldier and, and so many other songs, like whatever, uh, like Wharf Rat, like deadheads feel like they know who August West is. Well, yeah. Agreed. Right. Like it's kind of a connection. Like we're talking about the doors and Jim um, connecting it a bit with Dylan there, then taking it to the dead. And what that made me think of was Elton John and Bernie Toppin. It's not a secret that Elton isn't a masterful lyricist. I think he could write a pretty good song mm-hmm. all the way through. But he himself is like, I, that's not my my strength. And that he was really good at making you feel the emotion of the words through how he sang it, even though they weren't his words in the same way that Jerry was taking Robert Hunter's lyrics 
mm-hmm. bringing them to life, right? Imagine reading Terrapin Station on paper and envisioning that and going, I'm creating this world where there's the, the soldier, mm-hmm. right? And I'm creating, you know, throwing what gets thrown in again. Oh, the fan. The fan, right? Like it's it's taking that from words and making somebody feel it. And back to Jim, I don't know if there's anybody better at making you feel the song in how they're feeling it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's one of the best ever, maybe the. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think LA Woman, the title track is some of his best work conceptually to to talk about their city like an actual woman and then in the execution as well, how he weaves that through. And, uh, you know, it's easy to, to make a song about a city cheesy. Uh, like I've, I've personally never been a fan of, uh, Frank Sinatra's New York and myriad of other songs about New York. Like most songs about cities I find end up being a little bit, corny because you're trying to like mention different places and stuff and how he like talks makes it specific enough that you know it's los angeles without actually name dropping any given place it keeps it like universal enough that if you've been to la or like la you're like oh yeah it's sick but even if you never have and or aren't a fan of it you can relate it to some other place well, it avoids the cliche, like, I'm going to L.A. thing because they're from L.A. And But, like, I think you could be from New York and write a, so- a song about New York that could be cheesy um, just because it's kind of a cliche, right? Like, dropping a name. I mean, it's it's been done mm. thousands of times in songs. But then, well, right, like Alicia Keys' Empire State of Mind, I think that's one of the greatest songs and it's so specific about New York and actual places. And in the same way that LA woman avoids cliche, it does it where it's like, it's like, yeah, represent. Like if you like New York or you're from New York, it's like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is dope. Mm -hmm. You know, with the LA thing, most people talking about LA is like, I'm going West. I'm going to find something better. And yeah, I mean, it'd be a star. Like, right. Like, it's like that overly optimistic, like, I'm going to go and they're going to notice me. Whereas Jim's like, no, I'm not going there. I'm just, we're here. Well, and I think because of that and the lack of rose tinted glasses, it makes it a great um, d- depicting the city as a woman. It works really well because they're not candy coating it uh, like we like we talked about in the the working man's dead episode of presenting an honest picture of america it's like presenting an honest picture of the city like yeah we're not saying it's perfect motel money murder madness but we still think it's a pretty cool place anyway yeah presenting you the whole picture and saying uh, there's beauty even in all the the complexity and the messiness and it's it's like perfectly grimy because mm-hmm. right people talk about la like it's shiny and it's realistically it's not there are like parts that are shiny that, and then there are parts that are very very grimy 
Well, yeah. And also I was thinking about that the other day, the, how the song has kind of distinct sections, but they still blend really well and flow really, and it flows really well. It's like how LA more so than other cities has pretty distinct like sections of it. And obviously it's very spread out. And I was reading about this in Mike Love's biography actually, about how the the Wilsons lived in Inglewood and um, the Loves lived somewhere a bit nicer, but how the freeways are really act as like dividing lines between the neighborhoods to, uh, you know, keep people where they want them back in the more sinister days of urban planning. Right. Yeah. And so the, you can see those kind of parallels in the song with the distinct sections, but it still forms a cohesive mosaic like the city itself. Well, and that'll tie us into to what we've been talking about with this being the perfect driving song. Yeah. Um, it, and to me, it, after talking about it, it's like you're driving through L.A., you're driving from one place to the next and it's switching up and you're in a new part. And now Jim's walking down the street singing it. And it's, you know, it's very um, evocative in that way. And, you know, back to the driving thing, LA, obviously so many roads, highways around LA, you got to know where you're going. Right. And it's, you know, it's that we're going to go and drive fast in the sun attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we were thinking about, what is the greatest driving song? This is your personal favorite. Oh yeah. And I don't even think it's particularly close, frankly, not just because it starts with the car engine, but though how it, the accelerando, how it like builds from that car engine into the first verse. And uh, as you say, it, it totally transports you to LA, even if, uh, you're not there at the moment or you've never been like, you know, I put it on and put the windows down on the first sunny day. And it's like, okay, I'm still driving through the same Canadian suburb, but in my mind, it's not Appleby line. It's sunset Boulevard or the I 10 freeway or Pacific coast highway. And Right. It takes you there. Um, and you know, that's something we're going to keep thinking about is what are, what are the best songs for driving? And, and, funny today that I was listening to the album and I was doing, you know, recording and writing earlier and um, I'm singing and I'm, my voice starts going out and I'm like, Oh no, like I'm not going to be able to sing for the day. And it's, that's always a frustrating thing. Cause it's like my favorite part of the day. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go upstairs and play uh, like my brother just got this game formula one that I've, I've never played. And we're just kind of getting into formula one and it's, you know, cool. And I, and so I go up and I'm listening to the album and I'm not at LA woman. It's like, you know, car hits by my window and I'm playing and I'm, it's good. And then the song changes and it's like that. And I'm playing and I'm just like, Oh my God, this actually is the greatest thing. I, it, it, it makes you want to go fast. Yeah. This song just makes you want to go fast. And when we say best driving song, that is exactly what we mean is <laughs> this is the best song to drive fast to. It's like in Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby's like, I want to go fast. Yeah, like this song comes on and that's what I'm thinking. 
Oh, for sure. Whether it's the perfect, whether you're heading out on a drive or like a walk or say you have your headphones in while you're skiing and you're like starting off at the top of the hill. Yeah, it's perfect for that. I would also nominate it for uh, at least being in the conversation for best song intros. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really cool, Ray, on the roads with the, 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 the just that that pulse. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing that we need to talk about is that they have a bassist on this. A bassist right? and another guitarist. Really? Okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Who Who are these guys? Uh, I had the names. Uh, let me pull it up here. The bassist was Elvis's bassist, actually, which Jim especially got a big kick of out of um, as an Elvis fan. Bill Black? No, uh, like his bassist uh, at this point. Oh, okay. Um, the the guys were. Um, Uh, so Jerry Chef on bass and Mark Benno, uh, rhythm guitar on Been Down So Long, Cars Just By My Window, LA Woman, and Crawling King Snake. Okay, that's interesting because, uh, on Car Hiss By My Window, um, I knew there was more than one guitar performance going on, but I figured it had just been overdubs. I have never heard that there was a guitarist other than Robbie on a Doors record. I did not know that, but I knew about the bassist. And had they had a bassist on anything before this? I'm pretty sure that was standard procedure for them in the studio. Okay. Like, uh, I know Morrison Hotel, like that Peace Frog bass line is played on an actual bass. It's not Ray. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they had a bassist on all of them. Even the first one? Um, that might be... I thought so. Let me oh, okay. Away. But um, the thing that distinguishes the doors, other than Jim's voice, to me, is that when you hear them live or you see old clips of it, that there's no bassist. And obviously the keyboard player has to be extremely good to be able to hold a bass part with his left hand while playing everything else with his right hand. And Ray is, you know, Ray Manzarek's one of the best ever of doing it. And I mean, really the primary example that I think of. Yeah. Like uh, Zeppelin would have like certain live songs where that was the case. If it was something that Jones was on keys for, but yeah, in the studio, they never had to worry about that because he would just play a bass part as well. Right. Um, and having, you know, it's interesting to think, was the bass player the same on these records? Was it different? I'm guessing it was it was not the same the whole time. No, it was, and I just looked them up. They all had one, the debut, it's only on Soul Kitchen and Light My Fire. Okay. But yeah. Okay, well, that I mean, that kind of settles it. That I mean, the debut sound, I think that does make it distinct that for the most part, there's not a bass on it. Um, and like for me, I mean, the bass is my favorite part of most records. Um, and it's the, it's the part that I really judge um, 
on like how thought out it is as, as most people do uh, from that like viewpoint of, Oh, I need to listen to this bass cause I want to play really good bass on my record. What makes it tick? You know, what, what's, what is it that makes it such a good baseline, but that if there wasn't a bass on other records, it would really bother me. But I like the sound of just hearing Ray playing on the keys. Yeah, well, and the bass is what gives you that visceral reaction to the music. So the fact that they were able to elicit that without having it, a lot of that's due to Jim having such a visceral like vocal style, especially in the live performances. And, and John has a pretty carnal style of drumming. But yeah, it's definitely impressive that they're able to not only get by, but excel without it. Absolutely. I, I think it wouldn't be the same if they had a bassist that was like one of the doors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, and I do think the bass playing on this record sounds distinct. Um, I think the guy playing on it's phenomenal. Yeah. I was actually reading um, a bassist from some other band put this in his, uh, his top five bass albums. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I mean, that's that's hardcore to be in the top five. I mean, a lot of people like right, like they're talking about like Jacko Pistorius or like guys that are like really crazy on bass. Yeah, or you might see like a Led Zeppelin two in there, or like whatever your pick for Jones's best work is, and like maybe Quadrophenia or something with End Whistle. Yeah, or. Um like right like session guys like there's stuff that like lee sklar played on he was one of the california session players for a long time especially in the 70s like he plays on i think he plays on doctor my eyes by jackson brown and that's a great bass line Mm -hmm. but they're like there are guys that you know have played on thousands of songs that they're really really impressive on the bass but to do it for a whole record and to keep it um a very consistent feel and give it the same energy is really impressive. And I thought to blend into the door sound like it does on this is great. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's really too bad that they never got a chance to play this material live very much. Um, Crawling Kingsnake, they had played because it's a cover. They had covered a decent amount in the earlier years and they play it at one of those New York 1970 shows and been down so long they play in Detroit. But other than that, like they had two shows in Dallas in December and one in new Orleans where they, they played lover madly, at least at the first Dallas show. And they played LA woman and riders. Uh, and you can find them on YouTube. They sound like, they're obviously obviously still works in progress because they polished them up like a month later in the sessions. But uh, I think they sounded really cool, and uh, it's too bad they didn't get a chance to work them into the live stuff more. Yeah, well, Riders is so distinct, and you know it's kind of like a no quarter kind of thing where it's like very different. Um, it makes you it kind of transports you to like oh like very ethereal spooky yeah it's definitely a journey song and also a a vibe out song 
Well, and then like LA Woman is like that is the main song I would want to hear at yeah. a Doors concert if you could have one where they play just whatever you want. It's perfect. The way especially the Mojo Rising part that live would be amazing to see. Yeah, well they played both at the the show that Dad and I went to back in 2004 or whenever it was the doors yeah. of the 21st century uh i can't say i remember like a ton of details because i was nine or whatever but i seem to remember them doing a good job of it i've seen some videos of them i mean they they all enjoy themselves it depends on who's singing uh is it always the same person yeah it was uh ian astbury I've seen videos of the doors playing, but with like other people singing. Yeah. There's a video of Miley Cyrus singing with them, I think. Really? Yeah. I don't think I made that up. I think that is real. I think she sings uh like Roadhouse Blues or something. It's it's <laughs> kinda kinda strange, but cool. That's a little um, it's it's funny seeing like her doing her thing and like Robbie standing there like a statue. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because he was never a very demonstrative performer, even back in the day. Not, not that he had to be with Jim, but he very much just stands there and plays his part. Mm -hmm. I was reading uh, a little bit about the cover art and how the guy who designed it, like, they didn't know if it might be the the last one, so he tried to make it like special and have a a collector's edition at first so i guess the first however many copies the uh the rectangular uh frame around the picture of them like the rounded rectangle was uh there was like a removable component to it cool uh, but anyway he uh he thought it was fitting how jim's picture well, first of all, it's the only album cover where he's bearded, but also the fact that his head isn't any bigger or smaller than the others, just, just four equal parts of the band. Whereas on the debut, you have, you know, his head a lot bigger than the other three. Yeah. And he always hated the whole like lead singer complex. And when somebody introduced them as Jim Morrison and the Doors, he made them come back out and say like, no, it's just the Doors. Don't do that. And I think it's important that he did that. Like, I think the rest of the band would grow to kind of despise the guy if he was like, oh, yeah, it's just me. Um, and I, right, I mean, that's not what any of them were about. I mean, they they are one of the greatest bands. Um, their catalog's not big. And I think that if they had a catalog that was as big as some other people, you know, it'd be interesting to see how they compare um, but on a song by song basis, you know, the peak of the Doors music, the best songs holds up against anybody's. I mean, it's so, so good and so unique. Yeah, definitely one of the most unique bands. And I agree, you, if you put their top five to 10 songs against anybody else's top five to 10, they're going to compare favorably. Yes. Um, and especially with these two, like LA Woman and Riders on the Storm, I was thinking about it. There's very few songs that I would 
be willing to anoint as like a perfect track but i think those two could fall in that category along with like you know good vibrations i can't get no satisfaction like a stairway to heaven take your pick of your top handful of Beatles songs where like i don't care how wise of a music critic you are don't sit there with your scalpel and tell me there's something you would change about it because they're perfect and i think those two fit that group Uh, i agree absolutely um you know i think that it's the most refined version of what it is that made the doors great but it's also the most pure like riders on the storm with uh the way that jim sings and his and his lyrics it's unadulterated like you said earlier in that way that it's like it's not like he's trying to play down like how kind of different and weird the vibe of that is um at all and it sounds so polished too and distinct the way that ray plays the keys on that I, I don't know if there's a better example of playing a Rhodes ever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, even as a diehard Zeppelin fan who loves No Quarter, I, I have to agree with you. Um, you know, and and LA Woman, as we've said, it's it's astonishing the way it moves and establishes all these things. And um they're both seven minute songs. Right. Which, I mean, we know my cutoff is way before seven minutes. Uh, and neither of these are songs I would ever skip through. If it comes on, I don't care if it means I'm going to be three minutes late because I don't have time to finish it before something starts. It's like, I'll be there in a couple of minutes. Cause you know, you don't want to turn it off. It's such a, a total piece from start to finish both songs. And when you think of them, I mean, imagine if that were they released as a single uh, Riders was in June. Lover Madly was the the debut single, like in March. Really? N- imagine uh, if the single had been Riders and LA Woman double A side. Is that the greatest single ever? <laughs> Pro- probably. I mean, it's fifteen minutes of yeah of super work. Yeah. Um, um, I also think it's cool that. Well, actually, speaking of LA Woman, with the how smooth the different sections fit together, I I was reading something way back. I think it was John talking about it and how not using click tracks or anything when they build back up to the pace they were going at the beginning, coming out of the Mister Mojo Ryzen part, the the difficulty of like getting back to like stopping the accelerando at the right spot to be at the tempo they started with and uh he felt fairly strongly that they ended up a little faster at the end which doesn't really matter it it fits but yeah Um, it's one of those things that couldn't be accurately recreated now um with with click tracks or wouldn't be made easier right like yeah it would sound too stilted I'm a firm believer in the click track. I think it's amazing and 
makes making music so much more accessible to like anybody because it's like your rhythm might suck but if you pay attention enough and record it enough times for it to actually match the click when you take it out it will sound good and in time and and right back then they didn't have that and it was like there was a reason that the bands that became the big ones were that and one of them is that they could play in a way that was fitting for what they needed so right like the beatles their timing was very steady when they played live they would start a song and finish a song pretty much the same speed they played it sounds like the record pretty much every time right zeppelin they were able to speed up and slow down as a group in an improvisational way that's unparalleled by other people mm-hmm. right this by the doors imagine having a click track and then the accelerando i mean you'd have to take it out speed it back up and then you'd have to be sure you're back at the same exact speed to turn it back on yeah it's it's it, it's not simplifying the process and it's something that most people wouldn't even try to do now it's like a sign of the times from back then yeah i'm a firm believer that like for the for the vast majority <laughs> of musicians out there yeah click track is a beneficial thing but there's something to be said for perfect natural time like perfectly imperfect yeah it's got that slight bit of wobble or swing to give it character yeah like uh, this is a great example of that um honky tonk women speeds up after the intro like starting with the first chorus it speeds up and then stays at the new tempo the rest of the song or as you said with zeppelin like <clears throat> something like the lemon song when they come out of the fast part back into the slow six four, how it grinds back to the doom 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 doom. Yeah. Well, and there's I mean, there's I've seen people dissecting Beatles songs like at an absurd amount where they're like, Oh, McCartney speeds up approximately four beats per minute throughout <laughs> I will. And I'm just like Okay, or so? pretty accurate. Are you kidding me? Like, and I think it was actually on on the Beatles channel on Sirius XM that uh, somebody was like, "Well, it turns out Ringo's the only metronome in the Beatles because McCartney speeds up in some of this stuff." And I'm just like, "Who cares? It sounds great. It feels great." Like, yeah. and I mean, within a couple beats per minute, I mean, you're t- nobody would hear a difference. Um, especially if it's, you know, you have good timing and you have good feel to what you're doing. Um, but I agree. It's a skill that's like so different now because most people have either grown up practicing with a, a metronome or the second that they play, you know, a gig or go to a school, somebody says, you got to practice with a metronome because your timing's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people it's like, don't fight it. Just practice with it. It will make you better. But there is um, something to be said about taking that skill further, practicing with with a metronome or a, a click, whatever you want to do, and turning it off and seeing, can I still do it? Because it's, it's like memorizing for a test, right? Mm-hmm. If you memorize it and do well, great, but did you remember it? Yeah. Can you do it without that memorization the night before? For sure. And also, I think, as you said, it's a big factor that sometimes can get lost in people just saying, oh, well, the drummer is the timekeeper and that's their job. And then everybody's relying on them for that. But that really handicaps the drummer from doing a lot of interesting things. And I think the bands that really get to the top, every single person in the band has excellent time. Like, 
look at the stones keith a lot of times is the one driving the train like he has impeccable time for a guitarist and same thing with mick as a singer and and each member of the doors had great time as well i mean the thing that shines through the most when we go through stuff that's you know now 50 years old is that there is a level of expertise with this stuff like to get a record out back then was hard to do it was hard for anybody to give you the time of day and you know to get a label to sign you and pay the producer and make it sound great it was you know very few people were selected to do it but you know typically from that early to mid 60s beyond it's like anybody that was good enough to get signed is so good at what they do right and especially these bands where it's like there isn't a weak link right like it kind of bothers me when when people have discussions of like who's the most important member of a band or like who's the best or like who's your favorite it's one thing but debating like what's the most important part for this stuff is totally missing the point like the doors there is no weak link Robbie was a great writer and a great player. And even though there's lots of door songs that the guitar is not the focus, what he did to provide it, to provide the song with some sort of guitar was so different from what other guys would have done. Um, and the same for all the other members, right? Like you can't forget that John Densmore is a great drummer. Oh yeah. And they, you have to be a perfect fit with each other to reach that level. I've said, trying to get to the very top with mismatched musical pieces would be like trying to drive across country with tires that are a different size. Right. It's just, it's a recipe for disaster in in terms of starting up a band or, or, you know, right. Like being in one where it's like, you know, that there's a mismatch, you know, it's really important that you find the right fit and to cap it all off. Um, it's the last doors record and it just demonstrates that they did have a perfect fit and bond as a group and, you know, could do things that no other band could recreate at the same level or in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, uh, speaking of the bass playing on this in my research, I saw, uh, Densmore said that he really liked, uh, the guys playing because he was a very in the pocket bassist which enabled uh densmore to to do more like adventurous or away from the beat stuff to complement what jim was doing and i read in uh, a book about bonham written by his brother he said that that's like an underrated uh aspect of a drummer's game and something to watch for if you're trying to figure out like how good a drummer really is is how uh how linked they are with with the vocals because you think of them as being the complete opposite ends of the spectrum within the band and in compared to the the melismatic aspect of the actual vocal delivery they are but as far as the pulse of the lyrics they're actually really tightly linked and drummers that actually pay attention to the lyrics and do things to accentuate them and like mimic 
what's happening like in the words are uh worth hanging on to yeah right they're able to paint the picture that the words you know tell you by you know if the lyrics falling down and the drums are slowly falling down from mid tom to low tom it's that kind of thing that inserting that in a song makes it resonate with the listener so much Mm -hmm. and that was something i always appreciated when we were playing was a bassist who had really good time because it enabled me to whether it was mimicking the vocals or mimicking what you were doing on guitar the one of the things that made zeppelin so great was page and bonham being so closely linked and they wouldn't have been able to do that if they had a bassist who wasn't of jones's caliber that like you can trust they're not gonna get lost no matter what crazy thing you do absolutely absolutely also uh it's cool that riders on the storm is the the one on the album that was a total group effort like all four of them wrote it i think that's really neat that the the final song in their catalog while jim was alive is a complete group effort yeah right and it's like true to the roots in the sense that it's like before they ever even had a debut record it was like guys let's be in a band and everybody was invested at the same level yeah right and the last song they ever do is arguably their best one of for sure Mm. and it's a group effort they all wrote it together and it, it does speak to the strength of working as a group definitely and as we said at the beginning i love how that uh that whispering vocal track that jim put in addition to the the main vocal track it ended up being the last thing he ever recorded and like you know it's a subtle thing but it goes a long way yeah it, it adds a ton to the song um so the reason we're talking about la woman today is that it turns 50 which always uh, brings to mind matters of legacy and all that we talked about where we would fit it within the doors catalog where would you place it within rocks catalog as a whole what would you rate it out of five and uh you know, to the listener now who maybe hasn't heard it whether it's a young kid or someone who's never listened to rock why is it an important album to go listen to on its 50th birthday uh, out of five, let me say three and a half. Um, I like this album a lot. And as we said, the best songs on it are phenomenal. And I mean, there are records that have been bought over the last 50 or 60 years where people were buying it for one song. This has three, at least, that are worth hearing. Like, you, you need to hear them. So... Why is it a record worth listening to? That's why. Um, where do I place it in all of rock? Um, like their debut album is really important for me. It's like, say it's like top 15. I don't know. I'd really have to sit down with it to be specific. Let's say it's top 10. Um, this one doesn't like, maybe it's top hundred for me like it's it's you know it's it's not the best album i've ever heard um i think it 
is special though for it being the last doors album um and for it being kind of that return to their roots with true just blues rock i think it is important that you listen to their whole catalog to appreciate what they did um and i i think you need to listen to this record to hear the best songs on it and i think after a listen or two of them you download them and keep listening uh because they're they keep you hooked they keep you interested you know, the Riders on the Storm and LA Woman are songs that I go back to all the time and will continue to for a very long time. Oh yeah. No, I agree. And and I agree with you about the the difference in placement between it and the debut. You, the the gap in where they would fall in in the entire rock canon is probably wider even than what the actual difference in quality is, just as far as how influential the debut was at the time and continues to be uh, by comparison because it introduced their sound, which was so different than anything before or since. And is such a, a classic installment in the, the psychedelic subgenre. Right? It's almost misleading that I say like top 10 is their debut and this is top 100 because there are so many albums that fall into the rock category that are like superb. Um, and when we talk about like, there are bands that they deserve to have way more albums in the top 50 or 100 than others. Um, not even bands, just artists, uh, the Beatles there are a lot of their albums that are better than the best work of a lot of these other artists that are considered like the greatest, you know, as we said, that's an exception. Like not everybody's every record was perfect. You can't expect that. Um, the doors to me, I mean, yeah, let's say these two and maybe um, a third in strange days are top hundred of all time rock records. I think that's pretty impressive. Oh yeah. Uh, that's a 50% success rate as far as like half your catalog ending up as a top 100 uh, effort. That's pretty good. I agree. And I, I think that's all you need to know as to why you should listen to LA woman. It's, it's a great record. And especially this time of year, um, you know, sun's coming up. Things are looking up no matter how long you've been down. For sure. That's probably uh, as good a place as any for us to leave it. So thank you so much for joining the show again, Spence. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I know I appreciate your insights and I'm sure all of you out there listening do as well. Thank you for having me on. I, uh, I can't wait to be back. When am I back next for? You are reporting again for duty in uh, two weeks. Or, no, sorry. We're, this is coming out on the 19th so a week from today back again for another 50th anniversary uh my favorite rolling stones album and i'm not sure if it's yours as well sticky fingers yeah it's probably my favorite all right cool (laughs) and maybe the week after as well uh if your uh amateur bootleg years can handle (laughs) zeppelin's copenhagen 71 show (laughs) We'll, uh, that's to, to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week, Spence. See ya. Thanks for having me on.
always. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed Spencer and I's chat about the album. Now I will talk about placing LA Woman within the Doors catalog. I'm going to be doing an episode ranking their albums at the beginning of July to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Jim's passing. But I think LA Woman is their second best album behind only the debut if you ranked the 21 songs on those two albums, LA Woman would actually have two of the top three songs. I think Light My Fire, LA Woman, and Riders on the Storm would be the top three. After that, though, the debut would have at least four in a row before you get to Love Her Madly, I think, uh, Break On Through, Soul Kitchen, Crystal Ship, and The End. And then perhaps a few more after Love Her Madly, before you get to the other L.A. Woman songs. That's not a knock on L.A. Woman, though. Their debut is essentially a consensus top 50 album of all time, at least. I would have Strange Days probably in third, but I think L.A. Woman beats it for one because it has two epic, you know, greatest of all time level songs in the title track and Riders on the Storm, whereas Strange Days only has one in When the Music's Over. I also prefer slash am in the mood for more often LA Woman's vibe, sonic palette, subject matter, etc. Waiting for the Sun and the Soft Parade are probably my two cellar dwellers, but I still enjoy them a lot. They're interesting cases because they were released during what I would consider to be the band's live peak, but didn't quite become what they probably could have been. Had the full celebration of the lizard made it onto Waiting for the Sun as originally intended, Waiting for the Sun would fare better in my eyes. And Morrison Hotel is cool, but I find the blues influence more fully and naturally integrated here on L.A. Woman. It also has way higher peaks. Morrison Hotel doesn't have any epics, much less two, on the level of L.A. Woman and Riders on the Storm. As far as scoring L.A. Woman and placing it within Rock's canon, I give it a 3.8 out of 5, a little bit higher than Spencer, who went 3.5. Its peaks are as high as any album you'll find, uh, not just by The Doors, with the title track and Riders on the Storm. However, it would take having a few more, at least on the level of Lover Madly, to push the album into the fours. Having said that, it has a great vintage, timeless quality and a unique sort of urban outlaw, rough rider aesthetic that elevates it and sets it apart.
and it's a love letter to my favorite city. So it's unquestionably in my top 50 albums of all time, potentially towards the back end of my top 25. That will be an episode for later in the year, perhaps when I have, uh, maybe coming out of a little bit of a break. So I have a few weeks to really do it justice. Anyhow, LA Woman is unquestionably a fantastic album, a fitting swan song for the doors, and everyone ought to listen to it at least once, preferably, you know, once a month minimum. So that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know it was a little bit on the longer end. Uh, I think it's worth it, though. This album certainly deserves it. I encourage you all to follow the show on social media so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. On Instagram, it's at rocktalk.dr.cropper. On Twitter, at rocktalk.dr.cropper crop with two p's and facebook and linkedin rock talk with dr cropper you can also email me rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com if you have any uh, topics you'd like me to cover feedback for me also if you are interested in merchandise i have t-shirts for 40 dollars canadian or two for 70 and hoodies for $80 Canadian. So if either of those items interest you, you can reach out to me on any of those platforms and I can help you get your hands on one of those items. Also, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use, those are very helpful to me. So thank you all so much for listening. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you have enjoyed what you heard today and We'll stop by again soon, and if you've been listening for a while, thank you so much for the continued support. It really means a lot. I'd also like to correct one error from last week's episode that I caught listening back to it. I referred to Hey Steven on Taylor's Fearless album as Saint Steven had uh, Grateful Dead on the brain, so sorry about that. Coming up next on Friday will be another 50th anniversary episode this time for my favorite rolling stones album sticky fingers and spence will stop by to join us for that one as well and then next week i'll be covering the grateful dead's april 71 fillmore east run which ended up being their final shows there before it closed in june of 71 okay so be good go listen to la woman and have a great week, and I'll see you on Friday. Class dismissed. Thank you.